If you uh, are a regular visitor here, then you'll know that, or a regular member here, you'll know we've been doing a series through Luke's Gospel, and we are on chapter 3. And uh, this morning we looked at verses 1 to 20, so tonight we're doing the second half of the chapter. Okay, so if you want to get all the stuff about John the Baptist, and he was a forerunner of Jesus, and it's our conviction that the church here is a forerunner in the nation. Yep. You all sound very enthusiastic about that. Amen. So if you want to get the, that sort of prophetic sense of what that means, uh, based around the life of John the Baptist, then do get onto that download this morning. Pete Carter's had that word forerunner about nine times. Now, when God gives you a prophetic word nine times, you ought to take notice, don't you? And as I said this morning, that's not just about Pete, that's about all of us, about being forerunners in the nation. I said to Pete once, the problem with being a forerunner is you do a lot of running, right? This church is an energetic place. You know, we just, we've, our School of Supernatural Ministry has been set up now for five years. We're starting on a free school. We keep pressing on, and we keep pressing on because we believe God speaks to us. And our philosophy, in a sense, is very simple. If God says, do it, then we do it. We didn't know many of the things that now have fallen into place around the School of Supernatural Ministry. Similarly with the free school. We don't know how we're going to do it. We just know that God's in it and we keep pressing in. And as we keep pressing in, God keeps providing. So even before we start looking at Luke, just take hold of that yourself. Whatever you're involved with at the moment, whatever project you may be involved in, if you're convinced that God wants you to do it, then you can trust him for the resources. Resource is not a problem. We think resource is a problem. We think often we're around the other way. We we'll wait until we've got the resources, then we think, right, now we can do it, which is a kind of sensible approach in the world. But it actually doesn't make a lot of sense in, in God's economy because God has provided it all already. He loves us so much that he gave us his only son. And if he's given us his son, surely, Romans 8 verse 32, he will give us all things. All things are yours, Paul says. All things are yours. And that's kind of without qualification, isn't it? So if God comes along and says, why don't you do this, you haven't got a resources problem. You might have a faith problem, but you haven't got a resources problem. God will provide the resources for the work in which he's involved. So you can kind of park that. Now, you've still got to pray. You've still got to you know, get on and do whatever God's told you to do. But actually pressing in for God's resources is what he calls us to do, isn't it? Okay, Luke chapter 3. I don't know how this is going to come out this evening. I kind of think it will be a sort of meditation on Jesus' baptism. That's what I'm kind of aiming at. But I don't know when I start preaching what's going to happen, which is the exciting bit for you and hopefully and the exciting thing for me. Um, but Luke, Luke uh, chapter 3, verse 21, we're going to read to the end, which will be fun. Right, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was baptized too. That was the title of our talk this evening. That's the verse, really, that I want to focus on. Why was Jesus baptized? He was baptized too, just an innocent phrase. You know, it's like he was in the, in the queue and he got baptized. Oh, Jesus got baptized. Oh, fine, good, yep. Yeah, everybody needs to get baptized. Jesus get baptized too. Well, why does he need to get baptized? As he was praying, heaven was opened. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. 
You are my son with whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. Here we go. The son of Heli, the son of Mathath, I think. If I don't get the names right, please forgive me. The son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Islai, the son of Nagai, Nag, Nagai, the son of Math. I always thought Math was in the Bible. The son of Matthias, probably. The son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Joda, the son of Jonan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, Elmadam, the son of Ur, that was an easy one, the son of Joshua, the son of Elisa, the son of Jorin, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joshua, oh, it's got some easy ones, the son of Jonan, the son of Eliakim, Eliakim, the son of Meli, the son of Menon, the son of, here he is again, how many times has he come up? Matathar, Matathar, maybe, the son of Nathan, the son of David, ah, somebody we recognize, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, ah, somebody recognized, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, Lamech the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the no, I think that was right. The son of, was it? Yeah. The son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Amen? Come on. I love reading out genealogies because they never get read out, do they? And every word of God is inspired and useful for training, correction, and, uh, and so on. Okay? So if that's true, then you were greatly blessed by that genealogy. It's a kind of strange bit of the chapter, isn't it? We just had John the Baptist, and that was all kind of straightforward. John appears that straightforward, but weird. You know, John the Baptist appears out of nowhere, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He come on, you know, when people come to him, uh, the crowds come to him and say, give half your money to the poor. The soldiers come to him, and he says, don't extort any money, you know, just accept your wages, even... It says one of the translations, even the tax collectors came to him. And he said, well, don't, you know, just act fairly. Don't do, don't do the wrong things you're, you're doing and so on. It's all relatively straightforward. Then John the Baptist says, but there's one coming after me who is greater than I. I'm not even worthy to untie the, you know, the laces on his, on his sandals. He will, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you in, uh, in the Holy Spirit and with fire. And he's got his winnowing fork with, you know, and he was going to divide up the, good from the bad, just like the, the wheat and the chaff, right? And he's about to come, and that's why I'm here. And then he speaks out against Herod uh, for marrying his brother's wife, and he gets locked up in prison. All quite straightforward, really. You know, just general biblical stuff. And then what we don't realize is that suddenly 
Jesus, which the whole gospel really is about and who is the focus of our attention, obviously in every gospel writer, suddenly he appears. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. Now, why was Jesus baptized? If you know your doctrine, Jesus is the perfect son of God. Well, didn't John realize that? Actually, if you read the account in Matthew's gospel, you'll know that when Jesus comes uh, to, to John, John says, no, you should baptize me. I shouldn't baptize you. So you think, well, didn't he have that right? Actually, that's just right. If Jesus is sinless, why does he need to get baptized? Because baptism is a sign that you've repented of your sin and have turned away from it and are making a fresh start. That's why it was so offensive for John to preach a you know, baptism for forgiveness of sins to the Jews. These were God's people. They didn't need to repent. And then he points out to them, it's no good you saying you're just children of Abraham if your heart's not right. You know, you've got a change in your heart. So why does Jesus get baptized? You know, John has said, this is the man that's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit and with fire. And if fire means anything, it means purity, it means purging. And this is the man that's going to come and do that to you. Everybody else apart from Jesus needs to be baptized because everybody who's ever lived has been a sinner and needs to turn away from that sin and turn to Jesus and start a new life. That's what Jesus does for you. So why? Why? The very first mention of Jesus be, you know, uh, being in the gospel, apart from when he was 12 and obviously when he was a child, but the very first mention in the beginning of his public ministry, what is he doing getting baptized? That's for sinners. And again, if you look in, in Matthew's gospel, you'll, you'll see there is some sort of explanation. Jesus gives some sort of explanation, but it's not that easy to get into. Actually, you can turn back to it in Matthew chapter 3. John tried in verse 14. John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Kind of doesn't help you, does it? <laughs> what, uh, what do you mean, Lord, fulfill all righteousness? Look, you are totally and utterly righteous. This is a conversation I imagine having Jesus in when I get to heaven. You know, why did you get baptized, Lord? You know, you are totally and utterly righteous, but you get baptized for forgiveness of sins. How come? And, you know, when you say to fulfill all righteousness, what does that actually mean? Surely Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness in two senses. One, he's the perfect man. And two, he's actually, you know, um, uh, what's the other one? Oh, yeah, he's you know, going to fulfill the law for you and for me. He is the perfect righteousness and he offers himself as a sacrifice, as we know, is the only person who could do that because he is totally sinless. And not only that, he does this publicly. Publicly, he's declaring, I need, it would seem, I need a baptism. I need, you know, something that, that, that uh, symbolizes that I have repented of my sin. 
Jesus, this is not the way to start your public ministry. That's what my advice would have been. You know, probably yours. You know. Hasn't he kind of flawed his argument already? Has anybody ever thought this through? You look a bit puzzled. So, I'm kind of convincing you we ought to take this out of the Bible, didn't we? Sort of like, let's take the baptism story out because it doesn't really fit the rest. <laughs> people have done that with the Bible all down the ages, by the way, so we wouldn't be the first people to do that. Not that I'm suggesting that we do it. What's it doing there? Now, Jesus is a genius. Amen? All those who agree, Jesus is a genius. Jesus wouldn't do anything unless he had a real reason, would he? Jesus wouldn't risk his whole, the whole, you know, when you start something, you want to start well, don't you? You want to set the tone. You know, there's, there's no such thing as a second impression. You want to make a first impression. A first impression is always a first impression. It's not a second one. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So Jesus, Jesus, you know, if I was your PR manager, I would say to you, Look, let's get you on a stage. Let's preach one of those good sermons. You know, like that Sermon on the Mount thing that you do. You know, or, or, or why don't you heal somebody? That'd be fantastic. Maybe, maybe even raise somebody from the dead. That will go down so well. You'll have people flocking to you. And Jesus turns around and says, no, I am going to be baptized. Pardon me? Why? Why start like that? Why mess yourself up with that kind of thing? I mean, we've got, we've got poor people, we've got tax collectors, we've got soldiers who oppress us. They are all coming to be baptized in the River Jordan by John the Baptist. Hallelujah for that. But that's a sign that they're getting rid of their sins. You know, they're dealing with their sins. And you want to put yourself there? Come on. We're trying to start a worldwide movement. And you're kind of messing it up right at the start. And to fulfill righteousness... Jesus, you don't need to do that. You're righteous already. So what is he doing? Well, if you know your theology, you understand, isn't it? And I'm laboring this because this is such a well-known story. We kind of miss the point, don't we? It is absolutely amazing that Jesus offers himself in baptism right at the beginning of his ministry. He is making an incredible statement about you and me that we could easily miss because we're familiar with the story. Yes, baptism is normally a sign that you are a sinner and you need to repent and you need to receive forgiveness. Everybody who got converted to Judaism was baptized. The Jews didn't need to do that. That's why it was so offensive to the Jews from John the Baptist. Here's a Jewish prophet expecting Jews to get baptized. That was offensive. Here is the Son of God coming and saying, okay, John, baptize me. Because all righteousness needs to be fulfilled. Actually, commentators spend a lot of time trying to work out what that means. Probably one of the best explanations is, what did Jesus mean by that? Here is Jesus starting something new. Here is Jesus saying, when I go into the water, it's not because I need my sins forgiven, but actually I want me, the Son of God, are about to demonstrate something for you that is uniquely important. 
Here is the Son of God willing to identify himself with sinful mankind. This is the Son of God coming out of heaven where there's no sin and coming right down to the very hearts of human nature. This is Jesus nailing his colors to the mask, if you like, and saying, I am with you. I am with you even publicly. I will identify with your sinfulness, with your limitations. And Jesus takes a huge, huge risk, doesn't he? And as you read, as we read through these Gospels, as we go through Luke's Gospel, we'll see Jesus making the same kind of risk again and again and again and again and again and again. How does he do that? He keeps mixing with sinners. He goes to the places that other people go, don't go to. He allows the people who, who nobody lets touch them and wash their feet with their hair and their tears do that on his physical body. He is the Holy Son of God and he lets prostitutes wash his feet. He is the Holy Son of God and not only does he pass tax collectors in the street and call them to a different sort of life, he goes and eats with them. So Levi or Matthew has a a meal and invites all his friends, who of course are other tax collectors in the main. And the Pharisees are out there, the religious people cannot stand it. They just cannot stand it, can they? What is Jesus doing mixing with sinners and tax collectors? What is Jesus doing? The two people that Jesus commends most for faith in the New Testament are both Gentiles. The woman of Canaan and the Roman centurion. Never have I seen such great faith in all of Israel, he says, about the Roman, Gentile, sinful centurion. Jesus loved to mix it up with people, isn't he? No wonder. I don't know how Jesus lasted so long. Do you? Well, I kind of do, because that was God's plan. But, you know, how did he last so long? Actually, he didn't even, he nearly didn't get past the first post, did he? So not long after this, he goes into the synagogue of, uh, 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 you know, in, in Nazareth and opens, uh, you know, the, opens the scroll at Isaiah 61 and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and starts to say, you know, this scripture has been fulfilled today. The Messiah is here. What do they want to do with him? They want to take him out and throw him over a cliff. Jesus made so many mistakes, didn't he? He just didn't, you know, his PR manager would have been tearing his hair or her hair out. What are you doing now, Jesus? We've only just started. You barely gathered a group of disciples. Remember the disciples, that thing you're going to do? You know, and here are people, you're doing stuff that's going to get you killed. But Jesus' wisdom, he is wisdom, isn't he? And his wisdom, as we know, is just, just incredible. But here's the Son of God. He wants to identify with you and me. And here's the point. His humility is our breakthrough. His humility is our breakthrough. If Jesus hadn't humbled himself, and we'll see this again and again in his ministry, but right at the beginning, he's down in the water, being baptized by John. Jesus humbled himself. His humility is our breakthrough. Without that, without him coming to identify with sinful mankind, then actually there would be no gospel. And as we go through the gospel, you see that ultimately, of course, he identifies with us in his death. You know, the ultimate punishment for sin, crucifixion or death, the wages of sin are death. So Jesus gets crucified 
for our sin. He identifies ultimately both from the baptism. In fact, the baptism is a, is a foreshadowing what, what's going to happen with Jesus on the cross. And Jesus is hung and dying there for you and for me. He was, Paul says, made sin. He was made sin. The sinless son of God is a made sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 18. In order that what? We might become the right, listen to this, the righteousness of God. Just say to yourself, I am the righteousness of God. Look your neighbor in the eye and say, I am the righteousness of God. How's that feel? Everybody comfortable with that? Yeah. Come on, we've taught you well, haven't we? (laughs) That's what the Bible says. That's the incredible miracle that flows out of the baptism of Jesus and the death of Jesus. That he comes and identifies with us and to to the degree... That, you know, he becomes sin for us so that we might be forgiven and cleansed of our sin, but we would actually receive his righteousness. We become the righteousness of God. Jesus is righteousness. We have his righteousness on us. Amen? Why else is Jesus baptized? Well, you, you know what else happens in the story, don't you? The Holy Spirit comes down on him like a dove and the voice of the Father says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Why, why a dove? Actually, if you hear any weird stories about animals, you know, and uh, like donkeys talking to people and, you know, stuff like that, animals turning up, just remember, you know, we, we have a very kind of fantastic view of some things that, you know, a fantasized view sometimes of the things that happen. You know, Pete there, if, if, a, if a dove came down on his shoulder as evidence of the Holy Spirit on him, how would you feel about that? Well, how would Pete feel about it? Isn't it interesting? Why does, again, right at the beginning of his ministry, why does God do something weird? You've been to some of our meetings, weird things happen. Or so-called weird things happen. You know, people shake, shake, rattle and roll. You know, our meetings are nothing compared with the New Testament. For weirdness. Now, by weird, I don't mean wrong. I mean, wrong's wrong and weird's, you know, can be wrong, but not always. (laughs) But it's pretty weird, isn't it? Jesus is baptized. I mean, everybody else is getting water splashed over them. And the Holy Spirit in the bodily form of a dove. This isn't like... You know, like a ghostly appearance or, you know, well, I kind of saw it in my spirit. No, this is a dove. This is a real bird. You know, it poops on things. Not saying it did that on Jesus, but, you know, just to bring home the reality. This is a real bird. It's representing the Holy Spirit. Anybody come across the Passion version of the New Testament? Right? It's kind of rolling out. Brian Simmons, Dr. Brian Simmons, I think he's an American expert in languages and so on and so forth. Um, in his, uh, you know, so he's publishing different books of the Bible. Eventually, I expect it will come out as one whole thing. So I bought his copy of, on Luke's Gospel. He says this about the dove. Interesting speculation. After the flood, Noah released doves from the ark. The final one he released never returned. Similarly, 
the Holy Spirit flew over the patriarchs and prophets for generations. Yet there was no one upon whom he could land and rest, not until Jesus, the Lamb of God. What a beautiful picture. A dove resting on a lamb. To have the power of the Spirit, that's the dove, we need to have the nature of the lamb, that is Jesus. Although Jesus had the Holy Spirit from his immaculate conception, at his baptism he received the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit to fulfill his ministry. God gives more and more of his spirit to those who love him and obey him. Now, whether you agree with that or, that, that or not, it's not, not so important, isn't it? It's not, you know, don't have to make out a huge biblical case for that being, but it's an interesting comparison. And actually is true. The sense in which the Holy Spirit is hovering over creation. And occasionally in the, in the Old Testament, you get the Holy Spirit coming on particular people at particular times for particular tasks, but nobody is filled permanently with the Holy Spirit. That's your privilege and my privilege. That when the Messiah came, you know, he would baptize in the Holy Spirit and with fire, and we would be the people you know, that would have the Holy Spirit, not just on us, but in us. Dwelling in us. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus in his baptism is the, if you like, the first, the foretaste of that for us. The Holy Spirit comes on him and stays on him. He is a man who does miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why you can do miracles. Because you're a man or a woman in the Holy Spirit. It's the same Holy Spirit. The dove rests on you. Not necessarily in bodily form, but actually, in a greater sense, the Holy Spirit is within you. And most of the Christian life is convincing ourselves of the things that God has already said, isn't it? Have you noticed that? I don't think I've said anything particularly new this evening, but actually believing it is the, is, is the issue for us. Believing it in all its fullness, continuing to receive more and more of the Holy Spirit. You know why the Holy Spirit is given to Jesus? Because the Father loves him. This is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. Are you loved by the Father? Actually, it's a lovely kind of thing, isn't it? The Holy Spirit comes into you, talks to you, reminds you about the Father's love. The more you love the Father, the more you receive the Spirit. The more you live in the power of the Son and the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, the more you know the Father. It's, this is a wonderful picture of the Trinity, isn't it? Right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, here's the Trinity. Here's the three persons of the Godhead. They've all turned up. And they're all getting into the mess of human existence. Because they love you and me. That's what God loves to do, isn't he? He loves to identify. Holy God is willing to identify himself with unholy people. Why? In order to make them holy. The divine comes down to the human in order to make the human divine. Jesus' humility is our breakthrough. God is calling you and me to do the same with the world. Your humility is going to be the breakthrough for hundreds of people. 
And true humility is not forgetting who you are. If you were here this morning, this is a kind of repetition of what I said then. But true humility is not denying who you are. You see, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Before Abraham was, I am. He made the most arrogant claims that um, one, um, any man who's walked on earth has ever made. Arrogant in inverted commas if you're listening to this tape. <laughs> I'll just put my fingers up in the air. All right? I don't mean he's arrogant, but actually they are, you know, if you don't believe in Jesus, they are actually the most arrogant things anybody could ever say. I am God. It's the most arrogant thing you could ever say. A human being saying they are God. Jesus could say it because he was. Jesus could say it because he was utterly convinced about who he was. Nobody was more convinced about their person than Jesus. After all, he'd been himself for eternity. So it's quite a long time to make up your mind about who you are. And that's saying Jesus is in you, so you should be the most self-confident people on the planet. Sadly, Christians haven't been that, have they? Because they've bought into a concept of false humility. So, oh, well, you know, just like the... It's not to pick out one nation, but just like Donna was saying about the Pharaohese, and the English should just say, oh, no, no, we don't want anybody putting their head above the pulpit, or the parapet, or even the pulpit, uh, you know, we don't want anybody pretending they're better than anybody else. We don't want anybody saying things like, you know, I'm the righteousness of God. Oh, no, not in this church, mate. This is an English church. You know, we know our place. You know, we, are, we, we don't think we're class riddled in our mentality, but often we are. You know, there are people up there and we know where we're, we're, none of us like to be down here, but most of us feel we're in the middle. Right? Even working class people think they're middle class. Anyway, that's another point. All right? Folks, you have all been raised up into heavenly places with Christ Jesus. There is no higher place to go than that. Get used to it. (laughs) And you can't come down. Well, you can in your thinking, but not in reality. Why? Because you can't bring Jesus down. And since you're in Jesus, you are there. Seated with him in heavenly places. Come on, get used to it. That's where you live. You're not sitting in a chair in Eastgate at the moment, though you are. You are seated with him in heavenly places. I know we've been kind of, and we will continue to do it. Because this is the gospel, folks. You died with Christ, you raised with Christ, you ascended with him and are seated with him. Right? It's not good enough just to be alive. You've got to be seated with him in heavenly places. It's great that you're alive in the power of the Holy Spirit. But actually, there's something, it does something to you in terms of the way that you walk in this world when you realize that you have ascended with Christ and are seated with him in heavenly places. That should change your perception of yourself and your mission and the things that God's called you to do. That should be make you the most self-confident people who look at a project and think, we can do that. We can set up a building like this. We can set up a school of supernatural ministry that's going to influence the whole of Europe. We can set up a free school. And there's nothing that we cannot do. Amen. Every dream that you have can be fulfilled. Why? Because you have all the resources available to you. I mean, God gave you Jesus. Surely, surely, surely he will give you all things. It's crazy, isn't it? 
We're only just beginning to get used to this. This is not like normal Christianity that we kind of live with because we've been small-minded or we've been limited. We think our history determines our future. Of course it doesn't. Yesterday has got nothing to do with tomorrow, necessarily, unless you allow it to. Your failures or mistakes or problems or difficulties in the past, no matter how many you've had them, imagine Paul. He was wretched. He went around crucified, overseeing the death of people like Stephen, arresting Christians. He was a man with a terrible past. He was a zealot. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I mean, he was not a very pleasant man. And God just intervened in his life and completely turned him around. We still preach his, word, his words. We still talk about him. He's still transforming communities all around the world. And he's not even alive. Don't limit yourself to your present life. <laughs> Never thought about that before. You know, I'm standing here because of William Booth. Yesterday I had my hand on his signature. <laughs> Sounds a bit weird. I know, but my, you know, uh, my, mother, my mother-in-law is salvationist and father-in-law and her mother was a salvationist. She got William Booth's autograph. She's got it in an autograph book and I was kind of rubbing my hand over it, hoping I'd get some sort of impartation. Didn't feel anything in particular. But I thought, he untouched. you know, we're still talking about this movement. There are people in our nation who love the Salvation Army. William Booth was willing to you know, humble himself. One very famous occasion, he was walking under one of the London bridges and saw the down and outs for whom he was going to become famous for, or his movement was to become famous for. And he came home and he said to his son, Bramwell Booth, he said, I have found my bundle of responsibility. He'd found his mission. You know, he was preaching what was known as the Christian mission before it became the Salvation Army. And he was preaching and having, you know, a big impact on people. But he wasn't involved in the, what we now know internationally, internationally renowned and recognized, the work of the Salvation Army amongst the poor, amongst the down and outs, amongst the alcoholics, the drug addicts, and so on. Right? That man's influence is ringing down throughout history. But he had access to resources that are exactly the same as yours. Exactly the same, because God is the same today, yesterday, and forever. I want to preach you into ambition. I want to preach you into dreaming dreams. Amen? And all because Jesus, humility, is your breakthrough. When I wandered into a Salvation Army Hall when I was 17 and a half, there was a man there that I barely got to know, but he told me some years later, you know, when you first appeared in the Salvation Hall in Chomsky, I wrote your name down in my prayer book and I prayed for you every day, morning and evening. That's why I'm here now. His humility is my breakthrough. And who knows who you can serve who you can pray for, and it takes humility to pray for somebody. It takes humility to wander up to somebody or to even, or, or even people you know and pray for their healing or pray for something in their lives. It takes humility. It takes faith. There are other works which take, take, take a, perhaps greater humility, but your humility will be the breakthrough, not just of one person, but many people. 
William Booth's humility was a breakthrough for countless, countless thousands of people. And you might say, well, we're not all called to be, uh, you know, be part, to, to, to start worldwide movements. Folks, we are all called to be part of worldwide movements. The worldwide movement of Christianity that you are caught up with needs you to dream dreams and be willing to humble yourself truly with true humility that doesn't lose who you are because you can be totally confident about who you are in Christ and totally humble at the same time. Jesus was totally confident who he, who, who he was in God's love. The God that said, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased and, and had the ultimate humility to go to the cross so that his humility would be your breakthrough. Do you want to stand? Sure goes better when you don't look at your notes, doesn't it? I don't know what else I had to say. Why don't we just come before God? Yeah. We've got our musicians still here. Is Aaron, was Aaron gone? Who's downstairs? Okay. Let's just, just, let's just be quiet before God then. What's your dream? What's your dream? <laughs> What's your dream? How are you going to serve God in this world? You can make an amazing difference. Humility is part of it. Knowing who you are in Jesus is part of it. Two big parts of it. If you had those two, you've got it made, haven't you? I feel the Holy Spirit will just want to rest on you right now. <laughs> had a picture earlier of almost like two cogs coming together. And I'm just, just praying and just believing that God now is just kind of putting stuff together in your, in your life. It's almost like it didn't seem to quite click. And Holy Spirit wants to come now and just like click the pieces into place. There it is. It's a plan being forming in your mind and you think, oh, I just, Need to be kind of convinced about it, or I needed circumstances to come into place, or I just needed to believe that God would provide for all the needs that we would have if we were doing this certain thing. And I just want to prophesy this into your heart now that God will complete the work that He's begun. God is just wanting, waiting to pour Holy Spirit resources, financial resources, houses, whatever you require for your dreams to come true in, in God, then God is going to just pour that out over you. Because he loves you more than you realize and he desires his kingdom to come more than we can ever think or imagine. We just get a glimpse. We only need a glimpse in a way of God's love. We only need a glimpse of his purposes to excite us. That's just a little bit of God's heart for this world. He is raising up men and women who will humble themselves 
but be confident in God, in his plans and purposes for their lives, and in who they are, and their ability, their ability to do all that God's called them to do in his name and for his glory. Father, I just want to release these words into our hearts now. (laughs) Yeah. We release freedom. We release love. We release power. We release your presence. Whoa. More and more, Lord. More and more. Let all the pieces come together. Let them click into place. When we set about forming the School of Supernatural Life, God gave me a picture of a jigsaw puzzle. He said, don't worry, David, I'll put one place, one piece in. And then another, when you put that piece in, I'll put another piece in and another piece and another piece. And he, he showed me that it formed this beautiful picture of a butterfly. And then about a year later, we were in somebody's office in Bethel. Not directly related to the school, but we've been sitting there for about an hour talking together. And I turned round, and this jigsaw puzzle with a butterfly, this beautiful butterfly, was a picture hanging on her wall. How does God do that? Because <laughs> he's a genius. If there are bits missing from your plan, your dream, then God the genius can provide them. He can put in all the missing bits. Trust him. Just trust him.